electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everyone. I'm Kelly Evans. This is The Exchange. And we begin this hour with the big story since Friday, when a door plug on a 737 MAX 9 operated by Alaska Airlines blew out midair. The pressure so intense that it ripped a boy's shirt off his body and sent it flying out the hole. Luckily, disaster was averted. No casualties were involved. But almost 200 737 MAX 9 planes were immediately grounded for inspections. United Airlines has since found loose bolts on door plugs of several of its 737 MAX 9 planes. Alaska has also found more loose hardware on its planes. And an investigation into what exactly went wrong is underway. In a town hall yesterday, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun told employees that, quote, every detail matters. But if that's so, a lot of questions remain, especially given the past tragedies that ensued with 737 MAX planes, including fatal crashes in 2018 and 2019 that killed a total of 346 people. So let's get some answers. Joining us live from the Boeing 737 MAX factory in Washington state in a CNBC exclusive interview, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun, along with our Phil LeBeau. Phil? Thank you, Kelly. Dave, I think the main question a lot of people have, in addition to what the status of uh, the MAX 9 is, what was your reaction when you saw the Alaska Airlines blowout and the video Friday night? Uh, devastated, emotional. Um, I saw the picture everybody saw of the opening, but what I really saw was the empty seat. And I had spent a week with my kids and grandkids, and uh, so enough said. I, I imagine every human being who would see that um, understands the severity and the consequence. So um, immediately, uh, you get to work. It's what you have to do. I, I want to just uh, take my hat off and our company's hat off to the Alaska Air team, specifically the crew that trained most of their lives to handle that moment, hoping they never will, but they did. And the crew alongside the pilots handled it as well as it can be handled. Um, the plane landed safely and there are no fatalities. And then the leadership team did exactly what it needed to do. It grounded the airplanes, the FAA immediately grounded the airplanes, and the Boeing team supported every step of that process. And, uh, and now we're in a moment where we have nobody at risk, and our job is to understand literally everything that has happened, everything that surrounds that particular fuselage plug, and, uh, and fix it, and make sure it can never happen again. What do you think happened? Um, well, what happened is exactly what you saw. A fuselage plug blew out. That's the mistake. It can never happen. We're not allowed that to sure. happen. And I'm not about to speculate, but I will say this. The, the, the work that our regulator, in this case the FAA, has been doing uh, to inspect the situation and create a procedure and a protocol for the airlines to go out and inspect each and every one of the airplanes, 100% of them, and make sure, certain they're in uh, conformance with our design, which is a proven design. Um, I'm confident that that process will not only uh, prevent accident, but maybe more importantly, the data we collect from each and every one of those inspections, the data we collect, will inform all of the actions that we have to take as a company. Your people were with the Alaska engineers teams when they took off some of their panels yes. and they started doing some inspections. Yes. Tell me what happened when you got the phone call as soon as they took off the panel and they said, we've got some loose bolts here. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I have an engineer who is an awesome engineer who worked right alongside of the Alaskan Air. They inspected those first few. I asked him to call me the second he was done. And yes, he used that term, loose bolt. Now remember, a loose bolt in, a, in an aviation application is a bolt that's under-torqued. 
or a gap that you can see that is uh, measured in millimeters, not centimeters. It's, uh, nevertheless, it has the same implications. So, um, yeah, I understood that from the first moment. So you're not surprised to hear other reports from United as well as Alaska doing further inspections? No, well, I'm, I'm, I'm always surprised at anything that doesn't conform perfectly. On the other hand, it's a fact, and that's what's going on. And I want to know all those facts, and our team wants to know them all. And we, we're going to want to know what broke down in our gauntlet of inspections, what broke down in the original work that allowed for that escape to happen. Dave, Kelly has a question for you. Kelly, go ahead. Mr. Calhoun, thank you, Phil. My question is, what safeguards have to be missing for an incident like this, like what happened on the Alaska airplane, to happen? What lapses either in the manufacturing process or in Alaska's process need to happen for this to have taken place? Well, Kelly, I, I very much appreciate that question. Um, uh, I should mention the... Uh, the Transportation Secretary Buttigieg, the FAA Administrator Whitaker, and I have all had discussions about exactly that set of questions. The specific actions that we will have to take to make certain it never happens again um, will all be informed by the data we collect from the inspections, by the data we collect from these inspections. Um, so uh, no airplane will fly. None of the Dash 9s will fly. Uh, with an unsafe condition. That I can promise. All of the work that we have to do in the background in the quality systems to ensure that an ongoing basis it never happens again, that, that work is ahead of us. How but we are committed to do it. How did an unsafe airplane fly in the first place? Because a, a quality escape occurred. Can you because explain what that means? Occurred. What is a quality escape? I think that's the description of what people are finding in their inspections. Um, uh, anything that could potentially contribute to an accident. But something that escape. escaped from anything. the manufacturing Dave. process? Sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Again, Kelly, uh, it's very important that we look at the data that we collect from all of these airplanes. And we are literally going to collect them from all of the airplanes. Um, when we look at that data, Engineers from the FAA, engineers from the NTSB, engineers from Boeing, engineers from our supplier spirit. We will have all the answers to all of those questions. And uh, I'm happy to come back and report every step of the way to, to people who want to know. Kelly's question highlights the bigger question that's out there. People look at the MAX and they say it's been a steady stream of nonconformance issues or other manufacturing issues. Why can't Boeing, why can't it get the max going without these issues? Well, let me start with um, this issue is on a discrete set of airplanes with a very discrete uh, plug. We don't do it on any other airplane. Um, so that is the population of airplanes we're looking at. Nonconformances in our world, um, as we've been on this path since the beginning of the max introduction, and yes, the MCAS incidents. Um, we have asked everybody who touches our processes to volunteer information that might cite a nonconformance. And then we do everything to stop our production process, to verify that those nonconformances are now conforming, and then to resume our production. And it's been very frustrating for our people and for our investors. But we have been very willing every step of the way to do that. And as a result, we are getting ahead and ahead and ahead. We have not had safety related. This one is. This one is. And it's very important that we understand that. You know Pat Shanahan, CEO yeah. of Spirit Aerosystems. You know him well. He was here at Boeing for a number of years. Yeah. And he was here this weekend. Yeah. Does he realize the situation in terms of what's happening? And we're not saying that Spirit's responsible yeah. for this fuselage plug. We don't know. The investigation still needs yeah. to be done there. But does he understand the severity of the situation when it comes to the lack of quality control at Spirit? Um, yes. Um, I'm, I'm uh, confident in Pat. Um, he was here with us at our invitation. He readily accepted in the war room, listening to all of what we are trying to collect in the production process, um, taking it back to his team, interrogating their processes alongside of our people. We're right next to him doing it. 
we're not going to point fingers there. Because, yes, it escaped their factory, but then it escaped ours, too. So we're all in this together. We have to figure this one out. Um, I do have confidence in Pat. I know Pat knows the implications, and I know that Pat knows the seriousness. I also know he knows how to interrogate a manufacturing process. Does this potentially slow down the certification of the MAX-10 and the MAX-7? That's, um, they're very much unrelated. Um, and there's no reason to, for me to want to comment on those things. And the FAA is in control of all of it. So right now, I think my job is to focus on this issue. You've talked with the CEOs of United and Alaska. What have they told you? Um, it's serious, serious. Um, it's a safety incident. And nobody's going to live with that, period. So we're all going to be certain, all of us, that the airplanes that fly will never uh, never uh, uh, fought like this again, have a safety answer like this again. And then secondly, of course, they want to get their planes back in service so that they, they can satisfy their flying public. Um, I want to be very clear, the need to do that will not, will not rush the process to do this the right way. It will not rush that. You have talked, we've done many interviews over the last several years, and you have talked about improving quality control yeah. and improving safety here. Some people will look at this and they'll say, how can they say they're doing a better job when this happens? Yeah. What do you say to those people? Because we, we build really large, very sophisticated equipment with unbelievable tolerances and precision every step of the way. Um, in the post-max crisis, we went to work on it. We have been tackling non-conformances here and there, again, unrelated to safety, but we tackle them one at a time. That's how you build a quality management system. And you engineer the answers. You don't, you don't culture the answers. You engineer them. And then the culture goes with it. It's, um, and that's what we've been doing. And uh, anyway, this one, this one is a horrible escape. A horrible escape. And we will tackle this one the same way. We will engineer answers and be certain it can never happen again. And then we will, whatever information we get or glean, we will, we will look everywhere around the max, around the spirit factories, our own factories, our inspection processes, and we'll make sure that we take steps to ensure that it never, never can happen again. I know you're in a quiet period, so you cannot talk about guidance in terms of max production, but you've got a steady cadence that you're planning to increase the, the production rate yeah. over the next several years. Yeah. Can you still hit that? Yeah, and this is not the time to be talking about what I can or can't hit with respect to deliveries. My job right now is solely focused on Let's get this safety issue understood and fixed, and then production will take care of itself. Dave Calhoun, yep. CEO of Boeing. Yep. Kelly, we're going to send it back to you. All right, Phil, our thanks very much. Phil LeBeau with Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun. Let's get some reaction now from a former airline executive and an aviation safety expert. Oscar Munoz joins us now. He's the former president and CEO of United Airlines, alongside former FAA and NTSB investigator Jeff Guzzetti. Thank you both for being here. Oscar, is Mr. Calhoun approaching the situation in the right manner? Um, I think, you know, having been in these situations before, it's a difficult job and a difficult process. But the concept of trans the ownership, transparency and communication, and then a plan, an operating plan to fix what is clearly has gone wrong, I think are all important points. And I think he touched on all of them. Safety is the, the most paramount thing in our industry. I think everyone knows that. So there is no one, there's not a laggard in the group that's, uh, that's uh, uh, going to have an issue with this. So yeah, I think he touched most of the points for sure. Jeff, I heard a plan for a plan. I'm not sure I heard any new information about what might have specifically gone wrong here. I the believe he term that he used was a, a, a manufacturing escape, something like that, which tells me, and he admitted as much, it sounds like they basically have no idea how this really happened. Uh, Kelly, I think it's just the opposite. I think he knows a lot more than he's allowed to say. You got to remember that Boeing is a party to this NTSB investigation, and there cannot be more than one official voice of the investigation, which is the NTSB. So just having him say there was a quality escape uh, is kind of on the edge of what he'd be permitted to say. He did a great job in trying to answer these very tough probing questions. Um, and so I think uh, he might know a lot more. I know the NTSB knows a lot more. He's on the inside circle. The NTSB needs Boeing's expertise, but he's not the one to be able to uh, 
should not be the one that, that provides these details to the public. Oscar, in terms of the timeline here, you have pointed that, you know, the airlines now, Boeing has submitted these guidelines to the FAA. The FAA has yet to approve them. Um, so there are some delays here in terms of what the airlines are learning as well as they try to figure out their next moves. Yeah, no, there was something done over the weekend. I thought that it felt like it was going to be a, a good week to get a lot of the fixes and repairs in. Uh, but that was rescinded. And again, there's more clarity and a broadening of scope that's going. And so as quickly as that can be expedited, in my experience, it's often lots of conversations between the company, the OEM, Boeing, and the FAA uh, folks that govern that. So uh, that process would be really helpful to, you know, I, I know United has got about 240, 270 flights a day that are affected by this aircraft. And so they're scrambling to find customers' uh, flights to different places. But, of course, with those ground, they're not going to be able to. So the sooner we can do that, we can get everybody back and flying. There, these also, Jeff, amazingly, aren't the only issues here. There were also these um, sort of pressurization lights going off on the plane, which was flying over land instead of over the water as a, as, as a concern. What, how, how does that relate back to some of these other issues with loose bolts, um, potentially with hardware manufacturing, and just with this aircraft class more broadly, the questions that people might still have about using them? Well, Kelly, I think the uh, pressurization issue was addressed by the NTSB at, I think, their last conference. They don't see any evidence that that had anything to do with uh, any relationship with this door. It was an automated pressure uh, warning light. Isn't that uh, worse? And so, If it didn't have anything to do with it, this door, there was a separate reason the planes were just flying over land instead of water just to be safe? No, no. Well, so these types of gripes, what they call in the aviation industry, these, these uh uh, malfunctions or warning lights, they happen every day, all the time. Aviation is about managing risk. And so Alaska had a good handle on what these pressurization lights were about. They were probably related to sensor problems and automated systems that really had nothing to do. And even if they did fail, the pilots had manual control of the cabin pressurization. So I don't think that's related. But to your question about other things, you know, uh, bolts and uh, production problems, that can be looked at together as a holistic uh, aspect with uh, not only the 737 line, but the 787 line and other uh, production lines that Boeing has. If but there's also, a quality escape, right? I, I didn't mean to there's interrupt. a problem there. Then. Exactly. So, Oscar, the other sort of wrinkle here is that the FAA was already in the midst of grounding and inspect, not, not grounding, of inspecting all 737 MAX airplanes going back to an issue in late December for possible loose bolts in the rudder control system. That predated what happened here, didn't it, Oscar? So are those issues unrelated as well, or are there just a lot of, a lot of different ways in which this loose bolt situation is manifesting itself across the series of aircraft in recent weeks? I think, and, and Dave and Jeff knows even better, but I think that's the conversation that they're trying to project. There is a, a something inherent in that quality process that has been missed at some point in time. It could be as simple as the torque on the torque wrench that people use, and maybe it is a tightening of bolts issue. Nobody knows that, and we will know more about that specifically. But with regards to those, that particular issue that you mentioned, being tied to the bolts in the door, I, I don't think there's any specific design connection. It may be more of a workmanship from my perspective. And we just have a latest update from Alaska Airlines itself. They're saying we've made the decision to cancel all flights on 737-9 MAX aircraft through Saturday, January 13th, while we conduct inspections and prepare fully for return to service. And they say that equates to between 110 and 150 flights per day. Jeff, a final word here. I think that uh, Boeing is doing all it can. It's participating in the NTSB investigation. I think Oscar is correct that there is a bigger picture regarding manufacturing processes. Uh, there could be a relation, but we don't know yet. But I think eventually we're going to find out. We're going to find out soon. Oscar, anything you'd add? Yeah, just a simple to all the viewing public. And Jeff, you see the expertise and oversight that uh, that these airline these airline manufacturers and airlines have. Again, the prime importance is keeping everybody safe. And you saw one announcement of canceled flight. I suspect others will follow. So for the flying public, uh, 
check with your airline because there, there is going to be some impact for certainly this week and maybe further. All right, gentlemen, thank you both very much for your time today. We really do appreciate it. Uh, Oscar Munoz and Jeff Guzzetti. We'll continue to monitor that story, of course, bring any more headlines as they come in. In the meantime, we just had the first 10-year note auction of the year, and Rick Santelli is tracking that action out at the CME. How did it go, Rick? Yes, well, it's a reopening. We're adding to an issue from a month ago, the grade C+, Charlie+, Plus. the yield on 37 billion reopened tens, 4.024. And C+, plus, well, C+, plus might be a little bit generous, and I'll tell you why. All the metrics are really solid. If you look at the bid to cover, 2.56, we had one other one, but to find a higher bid to cover than 2.56, you have to go back uh, to February. So a uh, pretty solid, but the, the marks coming off this auction are based on pricing. 4.024 was the yield at the auction, but 4.019 is where the one issued market finished. So we have a higher yield, which means a lower price, Government's the seller. That's never a good thing, hence the C+. If it wasn't for the pricing issue of a half a basis point tail, it would have probably been a B or a B-plus auction. But here's another issue. Spain, the U.K., there's been a lot of European and U.K. auctions already for 2024, and they are hot, hot, hot. We had a Spanish auction that had a bid to cover of 9.2 today. The highest bid to cover I can remember on a 10-year was from 2012, and it was about 3.6, just for comparison, which means that Spain had 9.2 times more than they were going to sell to the public in terms of bids. Why do I bring this up? Because we are seeing the globe play rate, cut, roulette, okay? The ECB, uh, the MPC of the UK, our Fed, all investors think right now they're going to be lowering rates. So they're jumping on board the auctions. But here's the rub. 2.1 trillion, 2.1, 12 zeros is what the U.S., U.K., Eurozone, and Japan are most likely going to be selling in 2024 in terms of debt. Ponder that number. Kelly, back to you. Strong global debt auctions, a little bit softer ones here to start the year off so far. Nothing uh, disaster, but the 10-year above 4% in the wake of it. Rick, thank you very much, Rick Santelli. And tomorrow we get the newest CPI figures, which could offer some clues about the timing of the Fed's first rate cut. While the market debates when easing will start, my next guests say it could be fast and furious when it begins, if history is any indication. Joining me now, Michael Schumacher is Global Head of Macro Strategy at Wells Fargo, and David Harden is CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Summit Global Investments. And Michael Schumacher, that sounds like you, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. You think we're, we could be headed uh, down a, a steep slope here soon? Yeah, it's a good possibility, Kelly. So typically when a central bank, whether it's the Fed or the ECB or some other central bank eases, it goes pretty rapidly. Generally speaking, about 200 basis points in a year, so it's a pretty quick move. And I think it's, it's interesting to consider the inflation backdrop as well. Inflation's moderated, but it's not actually low yet, so it's come off quite a bit. But that's really going to dictate a lot of the timing for the Fed. But when it does happen, we think it is pretty quick. And when do you think it's going to happen? Yeah, around the middle of the year, plus or minus. So whether it's May, June, July, it doesn't make that big a difference, frankly. But, but sometime in that general ballpark. So the Fed's got a lot of variables to consider. What it really wants, so we think, is a few more good inflation prints. Maybe it gets one tomorrow. Maybe it gets a few more over the next couple months. That'll really increase the comfort that inflation's not just down, but maybe it's out for a while. Then the Fed can come in. That's what we think it's looking for. But in other words, you do think their reaction function really hinges on CPI to some extent PCE. But if tomorrow's a little bit higher than expected, do you think that throws their timeline a few months uh, further into question? It makes it less comfortable for the Fed. It's interesting when you talk to clients out there and look at various forecasts, people are very much clustered thinking about core CPI. Either it comes in at plus 0.2 or plus 0.3 for December. No one says 0.4. So the consensus generally is called 0.25. If you do get an upside surprise, that would be a bit of a shock. So I suspect you'd have the policymakers at the Fed say, hmm, maybe we didn't calculate it quite right. Maybe we've got to think about this going forward. The market would price for a much longer period, I think, in that event. 
the Fed may not actually change its tune too much. There have just been so many countercurrents out here to, to try and deal with for the Fed, but that would be a scary number. David, what about you? Are you a little uncomfortable with the fact that we've had yields back up this year? Stocks are off to kind of a sloppy start. Um, I think it, it makes sense given the Santa Claus rally that happened up 20% or more in many different asset classes. So uh, taking some pressure off of the uh, valuations is probably a good thing. In respect to the Fed and to the inflation, we do expect that inflation will either be in line or a little bit lower. And so I think it will go to this narrative of rate cuts. And I think that everybody expects that a little bit with the Fed. And if the markets have some geopolitical event, they can also help out with some QE instead of QT. So I think we're going to see some tightening continue to wind down and go into this uh, rate cut environment. Wait, so, and again, you know, we're, we're talking on the one hand about how the rate cuts might not start imminently, but you're still talking on the other hand about how they're going to be necessary to support kind of the stock market's performance. And there are, there are specific stocks, David, that you're a fan of, but um, if we have to push out rate cuts, does that make you nervous at all? Um, I for me, yes, we have to manage risk for our clients, right? So every time there is something on the table, we need to analyze it and get our arms around every detail of it. And I think that's really, really important for investors to understand and, and, and to realize that risk is still on the table, though there's no sign of it in the VIX. There's no sign of it out there. The reality is it's there. So we have to understand that for sure. But I'm not really nervous about the rate cuts coming or not coming. I think if they do come, that's because it's a good scenario in the sense of inflation is coming down. And if they do come because the market does something that causes these rate cuts to come, quantitative easing to come, I think the Fed right now is the driver and they're still behind moving the market up. All right, gentlemen, thank you. We appreciate it today. Big morning tomorrow with that print at 8.30 Eastern time. For now, Michael Schumacher and David Harden. Coming up after a down start to the year, are stocks still set for their usual set, she said, for their election year boost? Our guest thinks so. He'll tell us why and whether the Fed could become one of the biggest campaign issues on the trail. We're back on The Exchange right after this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Keeping an eye on stocks here, which are off-session highs. Dow's up about 55. Dom Chu has a closer look at the numbers, Dom. Hey, Kelly. So just still towards those session highs right now. But again, at 47.70 for the S&P 500. At those session highs, we were at 47.75 and 47.56 at the low. So again, trending towards those higher levels. Still, though, up one quarter of 1%, kind of towards the middle of that trading range. The Dow Industrials up about two-tenths of 1%, 55 points, 37,579. And the Nasdaq Composite uh, advancing one-half of 1%, up 75 points to 14,932. A key part of that market to watch right now and what's driving perhaps some of the incremental outperformance is still that mega-cap technology trade. NVIDIA shares up 2% right now. Alphabet shares up 1% and 4% gains for Meta Platforms. Now, I will put, say this. It's another day and it's another record high for NVIDIA. Plus, these two stocks, Alphabet and Meta Platforms, are both trading in at least 52-week highs. So, again, big story for that mega-cap tech trade. And then if you're looking for a mover today, stay with technology, but check out cybersecurity. We're watching Palo Alto Networks up about 4.5% at this stage right now. This is due in large part to a call out of Morgan Stanley, making it their top pick in cybersecurity. They like some of the macro tailwinds around generative AI, more heightened risks around cyber. 
but as well for Palo Alto specifically, a more durable growth prospect and more platform adoption trends in place right now. So we'll watch those particular shares, Kelly. Right now, Palo Alto, the second best performer in the S&P 500. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Our Dominic Chu. Over to Tyler Matheson now for the CNBC News Update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. The U.N. Security Council is scheduled to vote today on a resolution condemning the Houthi rebel attacks in the Red Sea on commercial shipping and demanding an end to those attacks. This comes as uh, U.S. and British naval forces shot down 21 drones and missiles fired toward merchant ships by the rebels in what is thought to be the militant's largest attack yet. Donald Trump won't be able to make his own closing arguments. After all, the judge in his business fraud case trial just denied permission to do so. In a letter to Trump lawyers, the judge wrote that by not responding to his conditions for Trump to speak in court, that it was assumed he didn't agree to the terms. And because of that, the request was denied. After 20 years with the trading card company Upper Deck, LeBron James has signed a new deal with Fanatics Collectibles. The multi-year deal projected to be worth more than $5 million a year. He needs the money, after all. Uh, the first card to roll out is a card that features the autographs of the NBA legend and his son, Bronny. It will be on sale beginning January 19th, a scant nine days from now. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, thanks. Tyler Matheson, got a news alert on Meta. Eamon Javers with the story. Eamon? Hey there, Kelly. Executives at the dating company Match.com and the giant retailer Walmart complained to officials at the social media company Meta that their advertisements were appearing next to disturbing or inappropriate content related to children. That's according to a court filing last night. The filing comes in a lawsuit brought by the Attorney General of New Mexico in December, accusing Meta of knowingly exposing children to the danger of sexual exploitation. The new filings reveal that a Match executive wrote to Meta in November complaining that, quote, we have also become aware that our ads are showing up on Facebook next to gruesome content in a group titled Only Women Are Slaughtered, showing films of women being murdered. We are also aware that this account was reported twice and has not been taken down. The executive wrote to Meta, we need to quickly figure out how we stop this from happening on your platforms. According to the complaint, a Meta official responded that it had removed the Only Women Are Slaughtered Facebook group and that the safety and integrity of the content on our platforms remains a core priority and focus area. The complaint also said that Match's CEO reached out directly to Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg but received no response. Response. The complaint says that a Walmart executive complained to Meta in November that its ads were appearing next to inappropriate content, saying, you mentioned repeatedly that you have shared accountability here, but to us, it feels like all of the onus and work sits with Walmart and those activating campaigns. And no matter how perfectly we do that, we run the risk of running alongside inappropriate content. Now, the complaint said a Walmart executive told Meta that Walmart does not believe our concerns are being adequately addressed. A Meta spokesperson today told CNBC, quote, we don't want this kind of content on our platforms and brands don't want their ads to appear next to it. We continue to invest aggressively to stop it and report every quarter on the prevalence of such content, which remains very low. Our systems are effective at reducing violating content, and we've invested billions in safety, security, and brand suitability solutions. Walmart spokesman Randy Hargrove told me earlier today, we take brand safety issues extremely seriously, and protecting our customers and communities will always be a top priority. And a spokesperson for Match Group Communications declined to comment to us today. Kelly, back over to you. But, Eamon, the precedent which has been set by X with the anti-Semitic content is that if it's unacceptable for the algorithms to surface these uh, messages next to uh, what uh, companies or advertisers want to be associated with, that they leave the platform. So are, should we expect then a wave of companies, uh, maybe specifically Match or Walmart or maybe others, to say, you know, then we're leaving the platform? Because we haven't heard that yet, specifically with regard yeah. to Meta. 
Yeah. I mean, clearly what you see in these messages back and forth between the companies and Meta is real frustration on the part of the companies and, and Meta dealing with this kind of inbound angst from its own advertisers. Uh, and that gives you a kind of a peek behind the scenes at how these companies interact with each other. Whether or not any companies will make a, an additional move away from those platforms, I guess, remains to be seen. But obviously, the, each company's got to make its own decisions about how significant this is to them. Uh, you can imagine that the social media companies are, are sort of playing whack-a-mole here. I mean, millions and millions of people creating millions and millions of posts every day. Uh, some stuff you'd imagine is going to get through, uh, and they seem to be suggesting back to the companies, look, you know, we're doing everything we can right. here. And, and, all and I, both yeah. sides are not satisfied. No, I would just say as well that what happened with X came at a time when Musk himself had kind of triggered people looking into anti-Semitic content. This was started by the companies themselves who had found this organically and were furious about it and then went yeah. directly to Meta and to Zuckerberg himself with complaints. And it sounds like those complaints were not addressed. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what it sounds like. I should mention, Kelly, that the Wall Street Journal has done uh, extensive coverage on these issues going yes. back months, a series of big stories on this in the Wall Street Journal. What we have here today is a new filing overnight last night, uh, which details some of the content of this communication back and forth between these companies. Right. And as I say, it does give you that peek behind the scenes of how these companies sort of yell at each other in private uh, about these issues and try to work through what are just difficult social issues across the board. Yeah, no, Instagram in particular, has been the focus here. Uh, for now, Eamon, thank you very much for bringing this to you us. Bet. Our Eamon Jabbers with the latest. Coming up, we've had many mixed messages about the consumer post-pandemic, and it's about to get even murkier thanks to deflation. But our team is crunching the numbers so you don't have to, and we've got results on what's really going on with the data next. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. We have new data on consumer spending habits with a new problem that could make it harder to figure out just how strong the consumer really is. And it's a sign of the times. Steve Leisman here with that story. Steve? Hey, Kelly, the CNBC National Retail Federation Retail Monitor for December. We use actual credit card data from Affinity Solutions that shows retailers chalking up some pretty decent gains in the final month of the holiday season. But the true state of spending may now be clouded by a new factor, deflation. I'll get to that in a second. Retail sales, ex-auto and gas in the retail monitor, up 0.4%, down from the strong November, which was up 0.8%. Core retail, where we take out restaurants as well, struggled a bit, up just 0.2% compared to 0.7% in November. The headline up 3.1% for the year, the core up 2.4%. Some give back from the strong November was inevitable, and economists expect the economy to cool overall in the fourth quarter after the outsized growth we had in the third. But retail has been hampered by a slowdown in the housing industry. All three of the biggest negative categories in December, electronics and appliances, building supplies, and also furniture, they're all housing-related. But categories more linked to holiday shopping did better, including general merchandise and non-store retailers. That's internet sales. It was also a good month for restaurants and bars, up one and a half. Deflation, a factor in there. Some of the categories with the biggest declines in spending also saw the sharpest price declines. That's in November. Combining November and December, fine holiday sales were pretty good, up 3.7 year over year. But tomorrow's CPI report is going to give an indication of what that inflation, what that was on an inflation-adjusted basis. Kelly, we've been subtracting inflation from the top line for months and months now. Now we got to add it back in when it's deflation. Incredible to already be at this point, Steve. <laughs> Thank you very much, our Steve Leisman. You know who has sure. the pulse of the consumer better than almost anyone? My next guest, at least when it comes to the younger generations who drive those long-lasting trends. And she can weigh in on everything from footwear to beauty to dating and, yes, the famous Stanley Cup. So what's in and out for 2024? Let's ask Casey Lewis. She's the founder of Trend Newsletter After School. Casey, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Let me just start there. Where, 
do I start with dating? Do I start with the Stanley Cup? Okay, let me just pick up on where Steve left off. What do you think is going on with the consumer overall? Are they in good shape, bad shape? What's your sense? Based on the amount of stuff they got for Christmas, according to their TikTok Christmas hauls, the economy is doing pretty good. They got a lot of stuff. <laughs> I agree, and I, I I was able to kind of realize that that not much has changed. People were still at the malls shopping at brands that I grew up with, and I feel like all is all is well with the world. Some places yeah. where we are seeing more change. I want to talk about dating in particular. We keep hearing, and, and from yourself, from others, that that people aren't using these dating apps and websites like they once did, and we're seeing some activist activity with Match this week, and they own Tinder and so forth. What can you tell us about that? So I've been talking to a lot of Gen Zers about this lately. I'm a millennial. I met my husband on Tinder back when it was still good. <laughs> uh, they're telling me that the algorithms have gotten much worse. It's just impossible to, they're, they're coming up against bots. And of course, all these dating apps are now trying to monetize. So they're keeping the sort of like elite people hmm. um, hidden from the, the vast majority of the users. And I think that young people are just sick of it. I don't think that they are anti-dating app as a concept. I think they're anti-dating apps that exist in the market right now. That's not a line I've heard before, but it makes total sense not to go down a total rabbit hole. But Ben Thompson has been talking about this, that AI is eating the internet. And we're all going to have to go back to living in the real world because online stuff is no longer trustworthy. But so what your point is very importantly is that people would stick with the dating sites if they thought that they were literally more trustworthy. And I'm not sure exactly how the companies are going to solve that. Yeah. And I've been hearing a lot about people meeting speed dating IRL, you know, and I've been I'm sure we've all seen the headlines about is LinkedIn the new dating site? Are TikTok DMs the new dating site? I don't think that any of that is necessarily true, but I think it speaks to how desperate these people are to find partners um, because Tinder and Bumble aren't doing it for them. All right, Casey, quickly on retail, because this is one of the biggies, uh, especially post-Christmas. Lulu's still big. People, I guess, can keep buying that stock. What about Uggs? That's a Decker's company, ticker D-E-C-K. Uh, um, and any, any new disruptors? What about Crocs? So Crocs did not come up, I must say, in very many Christmas hauls, but I think that's more seasonal, you know, a seasonality thing. Uh, Uggs, their stronghold on young people is wild. <laughs> Last year, it was all about the Ugg Taz. This year, it's all about the Ugg mini platform. I think the next big Ugg is going to be the tall Ugg just no. because it's a very Y2K trend, you know? Are you kidding me? I, that, that's our prediction. We'll see if it happens. But, I, you know, young people are just, they can't get enough of these nostalgic early 2000s trends. And we've seen it with low-rise jeans. We, I mean, we've seen it with butterfly clips. Like, what else, you know, what's next? It's the tall Ugg. No, it's, it's Casey, there's hope <laughs> for me. I, I don't think the camera angle would be very flattering if I should. I'm wearing them right <laughs> now, the really tall one. You see, they came back in style. Okay, so we, we talked to an analyst last week about the Stanley Cup who thinks that, because Yeti's publicly traded, obviously, and says this could be a real risk. Can Yeti make, if, if tall Uggs can make a comeback, can Yeti make a comeback? Or what's the next big, big drink uh, thing? So it is my belief that the Stanley Cup cannot maintain this sort of popularity. I mean, you're seeing millennial moms in the suburbs fighting over the last limited edition one at Target. You're seeing tween girls literally cry over opening Stanley Cups at Christmas. There's just no way. The early adopters have moved on to something else. Something else is, is pronounced, I believe, Awala. It's mm. the sort of like new it bottle. But I really believe that Stanley is more comparable to a beanie baby at this mm. point. It's All right. a status item. It's a flex. It's something that people are collecting. Maybe Yeti can breathe a sigh of relief. Casey, a quick final I one for you, because beauty is so big. We've all been hearing about this. Um, any beauty companies you think are kind of you know old news or, or, or ones to watch? So I think beauty, I think lip as a sort of category, whether it's lip balm, lip oil, everyone is buying uh, lip products. Not so much lipstick, but I do think it speaks to the general lipstick effect. People want these small luxuries. Um, Summer Fridays, Rode, there's tons of big brands in this space. It's a very competitive market, but I think we're seeing emerging category leaders. And I think in 2024, we're going to see even more uh, entries into this space. Amazing. Casey, this has been fun. Let's do it more often. I appreciate it.
Let's do it. Thank e you so much. Educating all of us, Casey Lewis, after school. <laughs> Subscribe to her Thank newsletter. You. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're seeing a wave of tech layoffs to start 2024. Twitch and Unity among the latest, while Twilio and Match, as just mentioned, are shaking up their C-suites among activist showdowns. What do all of these changes have in common? Let's ask Deirdre Bosa for today's Tech Check. Deirdre? Hey, Kelly, there was another headline this morning, too. Salesforce is pausing all hiring in tech and product divisions, including Slack. And really, there were these hopes that the so-called Sassaker had bottomed. But recent developments like layoffs and management changes, they suggest that instead of a recovery, we might actually be seeing a new normal in software. The conventional Wall Street wisdom is that the 2022 software slump, it was driven by the Fed and interest rates. There are, however, deep fundamental issues at play within the sector at large. And I want to show you this chart. It shows the revenue growth rate for a basket of software names, including Adobe, Microsoft, Datadog, Snowflake, and a bunch of others. You can see that it peaked around 2021 at 50%, and it's not expected to break 20% in the foreseeable future the next few years. So this all suggests that the re-rating in software could be more permanent and that the mega caps, this is a trend that we followed for a while, are doing it now cheaper at scale and good enough. Maybe it's not best of breed, but it's good enough. And when companies are trying to save dollars, that sometimes works just as well. On the positive side, though, the software reset, it may be providing new opportunities in M&A and new listings. The HPE Juniper Networks deal, that was part software, and it's about two legacy tech companies combining to create a better AI proposition. The journal reports that a $35 billion deal between Synopsys and ANSYS could be next. And when the IPO market reopens, we are likely to get another wave of investable software names. This time, though, with AI features and business model. But it feels like the software sort of peak that we saw a few years ago that may be gone. That's really interesting, especially if it collides with some larger trends coming out of the AI space. Yeah. Deirdre, thanks. We appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa. Coming up, low employment and 2% inflation. Those are the two Fed priorities, but will rate cuts in an election year jeopardize the Fed's political independence? The delicate dance ahead for Powell and company is next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're now six days out from the Iowa caucus, nine days from a government shutdown deadline, and fewer than 300 from the general election. And while my next guest points out stocks in election years with the sitting president outperform open election years by 13 percentage points, 2024 is still off to a rough start. Here to discuss is Dan Clifton. He's Strategist Head of Policy Research. Dan, I don't know what happens when you mix you know, election year with uh, January barometer, what what kind of, yeah. you know, I don't know if those two indicators can coexist. Yeah, I don't know if they can coexist either or even, you know, an election year with earnings starting to slow. Those True. are things that we have to consider. But Kelly, I think this is very important. The S&P 500 has not declined in a presidential re-election year since 1940. So you're talking about 13 consecutive presidential election years in a row. And as you alluded to in your opening, there's a wide outperformance between re-election years and open election years. And what that tells us is that presidents have a lot of levers available to them to be able to influence the economy because, hey, they like getting reelected. Sure. And this president clearly wants to get reelected. You're likely going to see a lot of those tools get used this year, especially in a year where the election is likely going to be close. And there's these extra variables outside that are going to be able to weigh on how this election goes. So we just, this is going to be a wild year and it's going to be a fun year, I think. <laughs> yes. Uh, we just showed your chart that shows the outperformance yeah. of, of the market in incumbent election years. But what's the difference when an incumbent gets reelected versus a change of party? Yeah. It's the same thing, right? When you get a very good S&P 500 when the president gets reelected, and we think that that happens is that the investors can figure that out by the end of the convention season in July and August. And then it's off to the races in September and the market worries about something else. When the opponent loses or when the opponent wins, you tend to get a big sell off in September or October as there's more uncertainty about a new president coming into office. Hmm. What's going to be that person's tax policies or trade policies? But those tend to be temporary. And you do still get an increasing stock market on average, even when a challenger wins the election. So some of these are kind of more dips than anything else. But largely, uh, it, is about, it is about kind of navigating this. And as we get deeper into the election, it's going to have a more bigger impact on sectors 
than the overall S&P 500. And you're always so good at diving into that. So I don't know if my last question yep. should be about those sectors, about the fact that you say the market often sells off around Super Tuesday, March 5th. Maybe that's something yep. to keep an eye on. And the third, third prong of this would be, do we need to pay attention to this potential government shutdown, I guess, next Friday? Absolutely. So we're talking about a partial government shutdown next Friday. And I don't think it's going to have a big macro effect when we actually go through uh, that partial government shutdown. But you can see the noise is really ramping up from Washington. You're going to have the Iowa caucuses on Monday and then a potential government shutdown on Friday. The market's going to have to digest a lot of these uh, what I would call uh, political noise. And it's really ramping up something that we didn't see in 2023. And why this is important is that once you start getting into the election, how the Fed is moving forward on monetary policy, how the Treasury is financing the deficit. Those are going to be important factors about whether we're going to be able to digest a lot of this political news. But if you start to get liquidity being drained from the financial markets while you have those political news, there could be some rough roads in the stock market until it gets resolved. We tease the Fed. How does the Fed fit into all of this? And do we play the kind of second or third level chess where we say, well, they would cut, but they don't want to look like they're politically compromised, so they're going to be less likely and, and that sort of thing? You know, Kelly, I tend to believe that the Fed will do what they have to do for the economy. And the real Fed funds rate is really starting to go up here because inflation's growing at three. The real Fed, the Fed funds rate's at five. The longer they go on without cutting, that means monetary policy is tightening. And they're confident that inflation is coming down. So I would anticipate that you are going to see some rate cuts in election year. We usually see rate cuts in election year. But I think the big variable that's changing here is the talk about ending quantitative tightening in 2024. As the reverse repos start to get drained and T-bills can't be used as much, the Fed is basically going to open up the capacity for the Treasury to issue more long-term debt. Now and the way to do that is by getting rid of quantitative tightening. So I would anticipate the baton being passed from the Treasury secretary to the Fed chairman, ensuring that financial conditions are still pretty loose here so that we don't have a recession in 2020. That's super interesting. And obviously, Lori Logan talked about that over the weekend, Dan, about her concerns that we need to wind down QE because of what she's hearing from banks and, and so forth. But so you yep. think they might, in other words, if they, they're not saying they're going to restart quantitative easing, but if they just have to keep the balance sheet the same size that make them a buyer of, buyer of treasuries, that sort of helps with the debt, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And that's the big issue. We just got the December data last night for the budget deficit. Kelly, we're running a $2.1 trillion budget deficit with a 4% unemployment rate. The, de the, de the, the unemployment rate should be eight at the level of the deficit that we're running right now. And so to be able to continually do that is going to be difficult. And you're going to need some of this sequencing between Treasury and the Fed. I tend to believe that recessions are caused by three factors, an inverted yield curve, a high real Fed funds rate, and low liquidity. Right now, we have an inverted yield curve. The Fed funds rate is starting to go up. So preserving that liquidity is really the key to being able to preserve that softish landing that everybody seems to be hoping for right now. You heard it here first. That's how I always feel when we do our interviews, Dan. You do a great job of getting ahead of these things. Thanks for your time. Great. Thank you, Kelly. Dan Clifton from Strategus, a Baird company. That's it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.